in our last study together from our series of lessons on the Sermon on the Mount, we dealt with what we called theatrical religion. As the Lord in this portion of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6 issued warnings to take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds, as the New King James renders it, before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. And then, of course, he dealt with prayer and fasting. These three areas in which the Pharisees of the Lord's time were involved in theatrical religion, literally, because they were hypocritical in what they were doing. And so the Lord warned against that insincerity, against that hypocrisy, saying that those Pharisees already had received their reward. In other words, when he said they have their reward, he was saying, in effect, they have all the reward they will ever get. Oh, yes, they will have the, the applause, if you will, of men, the accolades from men, but that's all they'll receive because of their hypocrisy, because of their theatrical approach to religion, because that's what a hypocrite is, a play actor, one who is, in effect, on a stage pretending to be something that he is not. And so Jesus issued sobering warnings in this part of this beautiful Sermon on the Mount about our activities in terms of our charitable deeds, our almsgiving, as the King James renders it, about our prayer and about the matter of fasting, something that is never commanded in the New Testament, but something that was engaged in during Christ's time, and certainly something that from a standpoint of private devotion can have benefit at certain times for us today as we talked about when we studied those three areas. But now tonight we come back to a portion of chapter 6 in this Sermon on the Mount that returns us to the vitally important subject of prayer, and specifically to what is often called the Lord's Prayer but what should more accurately be termed the model prayer. Because it is not a prayer that that Jesus ever prayed himself, as far as we have any record of, nor did any of the apostles ever pray this prayer, as far as the New Testament record shows. The Lord's Prayer, as we have often said, that is the prayer that the Lord prayed, is found in John chapter 17. But the model prayer that we will study briefly tonight is a prayer that is indeed something that indicates the deity of Christ because no man, no mortal man could have ever given the kind of instruction regarding this wonderful privilege of prayer that the Lord himself gave. What is prayer? The British poet James Montgomery long ago answered it this way poetically, Prayer is the soul's sincere desire, unuttered or expressed, the motion of a hidden fire that trembles in the breast. Prayer is the burden of a sigh, the falling of a tear, the upward gleaming of an eye when none but God is near. Prayer is the simplest form of speech that infant lips can try. Prayer, the sublimest strains that reach the majesty on high. Prayer is the Christian's vital breath, the Christian's native air, his watchword at the gates of death, he enters heaven by prayer. Prayer is the contrite sinner's voice returning 
from his ways, while angels in their songs rejoice and say, Behold, he prays. The saints in prayer appear as one, in word, in deed, in mind, while with the Father and the Son, sweet fellowship they find. Nor prayer is made on earth alone, the Holy Spirit pleads, and Jesus on the eternal throne for sinners intercedes. Then he concludes this beautiful poem with these words, O thou by whom we come to God, the life, the truth, the way, the path of prayer itself, thyself has trod. Lord, teach us how to pray. That was the request of the disciples. Lord, teach us how to pray. And Jesus taught us how to pray in this beautiful model prayer in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. And then he added some very important teaching at verses 14 and 15, at which we will look briefly after we examine some beautiful and very vital aspects of the model prayer and look at what the model prayer reveals. Let me suggest to you five things that are revealed by the model prayer. One is relationship. Another is reverence. Another is regularity. A fourth point is reflection. And of course, the fifth point involves request because this prayer certainly is permeated by request. But as the prayer begins, as Jesus says, in this manner, therefore pray. In other words, don't pray these words necessarily verbatim. That's not what he's saying. But use this as an outline, if you will. Use it as a a skeleton and put the flesh on the skeleton as as you pray. But as you do, and if you will include these principles that are set forth here, there really will be nothing lacking in your prayer life in terms of what you include as you approach the Heavenly Father. Because it is God on earth who is giving you this outline. It's an truly divine outline for prayer, one of the most vital parts of the Christian life. And it begins, our Father, our Father. And that suggests one of the five points I've just previewed, relationship. Our Father. And the tenderness and the beauty of that relationship cannot be, must not be taken for granted. Each time we approach the throne of grace, we are privileged, if we are the children of God tonight, to call upon Him as our Father. And notice too, He says, our Father, which is a reminder that this beautiful relationship that we sustain with the Father in heaven is also a relationship that is sustained with the Father in heaven by all those who are His children, by our brothers and sisters in Christ. It is not... It is not the individual alone, the one child who approaches the Father, but it is all His children. And as we express our Father, we are reminded of the relationship not only that we sustain to the Father in heaven, but that all of His other children sustain, and therefore we have brothers and sisters who are privileged to call upon the God of heaven and to address Him as Father. And oh, how much that should remind us of in terms of that relationship and what that relationship should suggest to us and what that relationship 
means to us and what that relationship demands of us. What we should want to bring to that relationship. What child of an earthly father who, if that child is thinking as he or she should, would ever want to bring shame to that earthly father? The child would not. Nor should we ever want to bring shame to the Father in heaven. And so it is a reminder that because of this wonderful relationship that we enjoy with our Father, that we should do all that we can to bring glory and honor to his name. We're also reminded that our Father is not here with us, but he is very much far removed from us in terms of distance but close to each one of us in terms of his assistance. He is in heaven. Our Father in heaven. And yet we are privileged and blessed to be able to approach at any time our Father who is in heaven, watching over his children. And then the reverence. The reverence enters as the Lord continues, hallowed be your name. Perhaps a word with which we would be more familiar other than hallowed would be sacred, or perhaps the word reverend is your name. And that's why it is excruciatingly painful to hear men be referred to upon this earth as reverend, when there is Not only no authority for such, but there's an actual absolute prohibition against such given by the Lord himself as a part of what he taught, where he said, call no man father upon the earth. Matthew chapter 23, do not call anyone on earth your father. Now, is he talking about the father-son relationship? Well, of course not. We can call our dad's father. That's not what he's addressing. He's addressing a religious setting and a religious title. And he says, do not be called or do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven, about which we're reminded as this model prayer begins as we're looking at it now. And then he says, do not be called teacher, for one is your teacher. That is, these religious titles... That's what Jesus addresses here. The titles that are so prevalent in the religious world today and yet so clearly condemned by the Lord himself. Holy and reverend is his name, not the name of any man on earth. And that reverential awe that we are to render to the Father is indeed something that we do with regularity, as we shall see in just a few moments. But as the prayer continues, hallowed be your name, that is, hallowed be you who are the Father, who are the God of heaven. Your kingdom come. This is one of two aspects of the Lord's Prayer, as it's called, or the model prayer, that we cannot pray today as the Lord intended it at that time. I believe it's clear from the context that he is is giving disciples at this time an outline or a model for praying for the kingdom that had not yet come. Now that kingdom has come. Thanks be to God it has come. 
And so this is one aspect of the model prayer that does not apply to us in the same sense in which Jesus revealed it here in this model prayer. Now, obviously we need to pray for the kingdom. But we don't pray for the kingdom to come because it has come. We should pray for the kingdom to spread. We should pray for the strength of the kingdom, for the expansion of the kingdom, the church of our Lord, but we cannot pray for it to come because it has already come. Oh yes, there is an eternal aspect of the kingdom that is yet to come when the kingdom that is here now is delivered up to the Father in heaven, 1 Corinthians 15, 24. But I don't believe that's what Jesus had in mind here. But the kingdom was near at hand at this time. The kingdom was about to come into existence, and the model prayer included an admonition to pray for it to come. And then, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so if you'll notice the request aspect, the request aspect of the model prayer is given here in three petitions, all here relating to, a peti- to petitions to God on behalf of others, really, or that includes others. Hallowed be your name, sacred or reverend be your name. That's a prayer or a petition that the name of God would be revered as sacred by all mankind. Tragically, that's not the case. Prayers for the kingdom to come, or prayers now that are pertinent for the kingdom to spread, are prayers for others, that others would be brought into the kingdom. And so, in a sense, these petitions or requests are requests on behalf of others that involve others other than just ourselves. And then, of course, when he says, your will be done, that also, that also is a request that involves others. That your will be done on earth as it is in heaven is a request that the will of God would be widespread and accepted by mankind. Obviously, mankind as a whole does not. And yet we pray for that, and we then labor to bring that to a reality as we take the gospel to a lost and dying world. And so there are six requests in this prayer, three of which deal with requests to God that involve others. But then we have three requests in this model prayer that relate to requests for ourselves. And they can be summarized this way, forgiveness, food, and fortitude. Requests for forgiveness, requests for food are our daily needs, including our food, obviously, and also requests for fortitude, for the strength to resist trials and temptations that come our way. Look at those requests. Verse 11, give us this day, our daily bread. A reminder that we are not to request the luxuries of life, that we're not to covet the luxuries of life or the wealth of life. Nothing certainly wrong with being wealthy if one has been blessed to be wealthy as long as one uses that wealth as as one should and keeps one's priorities as they should be. But this is a prayer for sustenance from day to day. And that's where the regularity I mentioned earlier as a point comes in because 
Isn't it implied here that if we're to give us, pray to give us this day our daily bread, that each day we need to be doing that? It suggests or implies regularity in our prayer life, doesn't it? That each day we come to God and we ask Him to provide for us this day those things that we, that we need. And we trust Him to provide those things. And as we request God to give us our daily bread, as we've mentioned before, we are not asking Him to bestow upon us bread wrapped in cellophane dropping down from heaven as did the manna once come to the Israelites as they wandered in the wilderness and needed that kind of sustenance from a miraculous and direct way. But no, we are praying in effect for God to bless our efforts to produce and provide for our families. Bless our work. Give us this day our daily bread is a daily petition, a daily request, a regular request that God would bless our efforts. If any man does not provide for his own, he has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5 and verse 8. And so God expects us to make efforts to provide. But it's not all us. We pray to him to bless those efforts. And in cooperation with the God of heaven, we are assured that as his children, who are doing all that we can from our standpoint, God will certainly do everything from his standpoint. And we will not lack those things that we need. But there is a distinction between what we need and what we may think we need, or that is what we want. And so we need to keep things in proper perspective as far as that is concerned. And so a prayer for, for food, but then a prayer for or a request for forgiveness, verse 12. And this is a vitally important subject. It's the only part of the prayer to which Jesus returns in verses 14 and 15, as we shall see in just a few moments. The only part of this prayer to which he returns to, to emphasize something very, very important about forgiveness is forgiveness. That's the part of the prayer to which he returns in verses 14 and 15. But the prayer or the request is, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now the word debt obviously is being put for sin, trespasses. Those things that violate the law of God. He's not talking about financial debts here. He's talking about debt as it represents the sins and the transgressions that we commit and that others have committed against us. The Apostle Paul addressed this all-important matter of forgiveness in the Ephesian epistle at chapter 4 and verse 32. When he issued this admonition, he said, And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. That's simply a restatement or a reinforcement of the very thing that Jesus says should be a regular part of our prayer life. That we pray regularly for forgiveness, but we anticipate forgiveness from God only as we extend that forgiveness to others. Now, how important is that? What it says, in a nutshell, is this. You refuse to forgive others if they have truly repented of sin and you refuse to forgive them despite their repentance, then you might as well stop wasting your breath when you approach the God of heaven and ask for forgiveness. You will not obtain it. 
you will not obtain it. It's just that clear, isn't it? And don't you think that may be why he returns to this subject in verses 14 and 15, as we'll see him emphasize in just a moment, that it is so important to understand the importance of forgiveness. Now, as we have often said, there is a distinction that the Scripture clearly makes between extending forgiveness and extending an attitude of forgiveness toward those who have sinned. You cannot forgive someone who has sinned and refuses to repent. You don't have that right. You don't have that obligation. You are not required to do what God himself will not and cannot do. And God has made it clear he cannot and will not forgive those who've sinned and persist in that sin and will not repent of that sin. So I can't do what God can't do and he does not expect me to. But what is obviously under consideration by the Lord in this model prayer and his comments upon it in verses 14 and 15, we'll see in just a moment, what is obviously in view is one who has truly repented of sin and has asked for your forgiveness and you refuse to extend it, then you cannot be forgiven yourself when you try to approach the throne of heaven. And it tells us just how important it is to forgive. But if we don't have a forgiving spirit, we may be less likely to extend forgiveness when one truly repents. So let's always make sure that we have that forgiving spirit, that we're always longing for the repentance on the part of the sinner so that we can forgive and working to bring about that repentance in the sinner so that we can forgive. And how many times do we forgive? Remember what Peter asked the Lord on one occasion? How many times should I forgive one who sins against me? Seven times? And perhaps the question indicated on Peter's part that that was very generous. If I would be willing to forgive someone seven times who genuinely turns from sin and repents, wouldn't that be very generous? And how did the Lord respond? Seventy times seven, Peter. That's how many times you forgive someone who truly repents and asks for forgiveness. When repentance is forthcoming, forgiveness must follow time and time again. And when Jesus said 70 times 7, do you think he meant, if my math is correct, 490 times? Why, of course not. He didn't mean 490, so if you've got someone that sinned against you 491 times, 491st time, you do not have to forgive. No, we know what the Lord meant. He meant to infinity. <laughs> to infinity. In other words, as long as repentance is forthcoming, then forgiveness must follow. And it behooves us to always have that forgiving spirit, as we said, so that we are ready to forgive and we're working to bring about repentance so that we can forgive. Oh, how important this matter is. Well, let's just drop down to verses 14 and 15 before we conclude the prayer and see how he comes back to this subject here in these verses. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Let me ask you something too, by the way. What if Jesus had not followed that statement with these words? But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. If he had not actually expressed that, should we have drawn the same conclusion regardless? Yes. 
Why? Because when he said, if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you, what follows logically is if you don't do that, he won't forgive you. But he didn't even lead us to draw, leave us to draw that conclusion from the implication. He explicitly stated it so that there's no possibility of missing it. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Oh, how important this matter of forgiveness is. But as we said, we must maintain that distinction between the forgiving spirit that we always must have and the actual forgiveness that we cannot extend unless repentance is forthcoming. Remember Luke 17, 3. Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he doesn't repent, what? You can't forgive, but you still have that forgiving spirit toward him. You do all that you can to encourage him to repent, but you cannot forgive until repentance occurs. And that lets us know, too, that when we do sin, we need to be ready to repent. We need to be those who don't have to be cajoled, who don't have to be warned time and time again, don't have to be reminded of what has happened too often, but, but once should be sufficient. If we know we've sinned, let's be ready to repent so that God and our brothers and sisters can extend that precious forgiveness. Now to come back to the prayer itself. And the final request that involves a request for self. We've seen the request for food and for forgiveness, but we also need fortitude. We need the strength to withstand temptation. Temptation from the standpoint of yielding to sin, as it is sometimes used in Scripture, but also strength to withstand the trials that come our way and the tribulations, as the word temptation is sometimes used. The word temptation is used in different ways, especially the King James translation. Genesis 22.1 says, God tempted Abraham. Well, the American Standard says God proved him. I think the New King James says tested him to test his faith. He didn't tempt him to sin. He tried him or tested his faith. God allows our faith to be tested. But what about tempting us to sin? Does God tempt us to sin? Never. That's not a possibility. James 1.13 says when you're tempted, don't ever say you're tempted by God. God cannot be tempted with evil and he does not tempt anyone to sin. So what is Jesus admonishing us to pray for here when he says, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one? I believe he's asking, he's asking us to pray that we will be able to have the strength and the fortitude to use what God has provided for us to withstand trials and tribulations and to withstand temptation. And what has he provided? He's provided... His word, hasn't he? You remember the temptations of Christ as recorded in Matthew chapter 4, for example? And when Satan tempted the Lord to use his power, to abuse his power in a way that would have been contrary to God's will, how did Jesus respond to those temptations? Three words are crucial, aren't they? It is written. It is written. It is written. And so, in effect, Jesus is just simply saying, pray to be delivered from the evil one. 
pray for the fortitude to be able to be delivered from the evil one, and God has provided all you need to be able to do that, but you must make the choice as to whether or not you'll use it, feed upon it in such a way as to gain the strength to be able to endure either the trials, as the word tempt is sometimes used, or to withstand the evil one and the temptation to sin. But God does not tempt anyone to sin, nor can he be tempted. And then the doxology, if you will, of this prayer is, For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And that's the other thing that we can't do in this prayer or follow as the model prayer because it's simply followed by an amen. And remember, Jesus told his disciples, you're going to come to a time when you will ask in my name. You haven't asked in my name prior to this, but you will ask henceforth in my name. And therefore, the admonition for us is to pray through Christ to God. The kingdom has come. We can pray for it to spread. The Lord has gone to glory, and our prayers go through him to the Father in heaven in his name. And the glory and the power and the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ is in place, and for it we should give thanks every day of our lives and strive to be a faithful and strong part of that kingdom. Because if we are, we have the full assurance that that kingdom for which the Lord will one day return, as we mentioned earlier in 1 Corinthians 15, 24, will be delivered to the Father in heaven, where we may glorify him forevermore, because we have glorified him here on earth. And in what is truly the Lord's prayer, that's what Jesus expressed to the Father in one part of that prayer, didn't he? He prayed, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. That's what our determination must be as well, to glorify the Father here on earth. And a part of that glory is to strengthen ourselves through the kind of prayer that Jesus provided the pattern for right here. To make it fervent, sincere, and a regular part of our Christian lives because it is so vital in terms of com communication and keeping those lines of communication open between us and the Father in heaven to gain the strength that we need to be able to continually glorify him here so that we'll have the wonderful privilege of glorifying him there forevermore. Let me ask you tonight as we close, if you are bringing glory to God here, you're not, if you're not a Christian, you cannot glorify God in your life and by your life until that life is turned over to the Son of God through obedience to the gospel that he delivered. And that gospel dictates that you believe it and believe in the one who gave it, the Christ, the Son of the living God, with all of your heart. Repent of your sins based upon that belief, confess him to be the Christ, and then be buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. And when you rise from that watery grave, you rise having gained one of the greatest privileges that one could ever have, the privilege of prayer. 
the privilege of following Jesus' instruction to pray fervently to the Father through your mediator and high priest, Jesus Christ, because it is a privilege that belongs only to those who have become obedient to his gospel and who have identified themselves with the Father through the Son in sweet obedience to his will. The writer of old said, He who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Proverbs 28, 9. Our prayer can be a blessed privilege, and we can have the full assurance that God hears every prayer and answers in accordance with his will if we bring our lives into harmony with his will. If you haven't done that, would you do that tonight? Believing, repenting, confessing, and being baptized. Coming home to your first love if you've left that first love and know that you can no longer approach the throne of heaven as you once did because your life is not a life that is in harmony with his will. Come home as we stand to sing.